Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry Hutchinson. I am one of the co-hosts of the interpreter program and uh, we've got the interpreter radio show this evening and my with me are my co-hosts john gee and kevin christensen good evening john good evening kevin good evening good evening want to thank you all for being with us on this uh fine sunday evening and uh i would say brothers that we are well first of all we're missing mark johnson who is excused he was traveling with his family today i know they're back but uh, we gave him the night off. Um, we are a, major- a minority, and I suspect that our listeners are a vaster minority. Is that would that be is that a word, Kevin? Vaster minority. Yes. <laughs> it is now. In light of the uh, in light of the other event that's going on today, we'll talk about that next hour. But uh, just wanted to begin by thanking our sponsor for this program. This is the. Uh, Interpreter Foundation radio show brought to you every Sunday evening by the Interpreter Foundation, which is a uh, 501c3 corporation staffed with entirely volunteers. And we bring to you a lot of different options. But essentially, the mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to defend the doctrines, beliefs, practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through faithful scholarship. We do that in several ways, and this program is one of them. Uh, it's later turned into a podcast. And those of you who have been listening for a while know that the first hour we dedicate to a Come Follow Me section. Tonight's section will cover Second Nephi 26, or 25 through, through, or 20 through 25. And then the uh, second hour will have several other topics that we'll talk about when we get there want to thank one of our sponsors this evening that is uh the kimber academy which is a private school here in utah county and essentially what they do is to um it's a k through 12 private school and unlike public schools they keep god in the classroom it's a special place where teachers guide students toward faith and morality with quality engaging curriculum Every parent's voice is heard at the Kimber Academy, and in Utah, it's located at Linden in Linden, and there are many other locations throughout the United States. So if you want to find out more or schedule a tour, call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158, or you can go to KimberSchool.com. That's KimberSchool.com. So we want to thank them for sponsoring this program this evening. And as well as our opportunity with the Interpreter Foundation. And, um, you know, we, we get, this is one of my favorite parts of the Book of Mormon. We are at the tail end of a block of Isaiah that really, I think, intimidates a lot of readers of the Book of Mormon. And then the, we get to Nephi, where he essentially describes Isaiah's prophecies in plain language for the reader. And he does this for a couple of reasons. And one of them is he says, 
nobody can understand prophecy like the Jews. And he talks about all the positives about it and how because he's got that teaching and that background, he can understand the prophecies. He can understand the prophecies of Isaiah better than any Gentile uh, in, in a certain way. But he doesn't pass that on to his descendants because, and he explains some darkness and things like that. So, brothers, I'd like to start there. What is it about the teachings of the Jews that Nephi is able to take the positive and then it's so negative, though, that he doesn't want to pass it on? We'll, we'll start with you, Kevin. What, what do you think about that? Um, well, I, I think he's, he's concerned about some of the negative things, but I, I think he's, he's dealing with the fact that he's got a mixed cultural society that he's dealing with already at this point. The, the, the issue of, uh, it's hard for me to, for my people to not know concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. Well, if, if all of his people you know, were, were raised uh, solely by Nephi's, you know, Nephi and Lehi and you know, those guys who had some background in Jerusalem, there would be no cultural conflict involved. So I, I think this is an indication that there's cultural mixing going on from the start. Otherwise, the issue couldn't have happened. Uh, there would be no you know, esoteric nature to it because it was what everybody knew. And he's also talking about, of course, that, uh, that, uh, that you need prophecy, but also that, that cultural thing. There's none other people which understand the things spoken unto the Jews, like unto them, say that they, they are taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. Now, he doesn't do it right there, and he tries, and I think he's trying to give them the plainness. But he's also getting these huge blocks of Isaiah, and I think there's, there's got to be a point where um, you can rely on an interpreter to a certain extent, and, and words of plainness to a certain extent, but even words of plainness are presuming a context where everybody, you know, is speaking the same language and making the same, same assumptions. So I think that this is, is, uh, comments about plainness, but also the, the cautionary that you can't understand the things of the Jews, Savior taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. I think there's a little bit of tension in there, and I think it's supposed to be there, that we're not just supposed to dispose of the idea, well, we don't need to understand the things of the Jews, but recognize that uh, you've got to start where people are and speak to them at that, that level. But there's, for us in the gospel, the invitation is also always to seek further light and knowledge. It's not just say, okay, we've heard the plain thoughts, now it's all on the shelf. You know, even in 3rd in, uh, Nephi, Jesus tells the people, says, you can't understand it all, go home, prepare your minds for the morrow. And I think that's more than just the next day. That's just continually preparing our minds to be able to get more out of the seed. Because, uh, you know, the parable of the sower, the, the message is, depending on soil and nurture and time, you can get a harvest of nothing, or fivefold, or tenfold, or a hundredfold. And that's all up to us. John? Well, thank you, Kevin, for stealing my thunder. Um, <laughs> now I want to underline a couple of the points that you made, because I was going to make them too. Uh, one is when... So Nephi has been through three cultures. He started out in Jerusalem. He knows about the area there. Um, says, I know concerning the regions roundabout. And then he's also been down through Arabia and seen that culture there. Now is in the New World, completely different culture. And, and I'm going to disagree slightly with you. I think that the, 
the culture is so different um, that you know their houses aren't built the same. The how they get their food isn't going to in many ways isn't going to be the same. There's no olive culture in the new world. There are all these things about that they just knew, everybody knew because it was all around them in Israel, and they don't know it in the new world. And so he sees the difference that the culture can make. And so he wants to talk in plainness. And so he's not going to do it the way... But on the other hand, Isaiah is this, um, is like the, in some ways, the uh, ancient Hebrew Shakespeare. Uh, he says it so well, and there's so much going on in the language. There are these plays on words and uh, puns and all of this stuff that's going on. And, and Nephi is only 100 years down the road, and he understands this. But his kids... They don't know any of these institutions. They don't know any. They may not know the language all that well. And uh, so he's going to teach them in a way that's going to transcend the culture. And that's our benefit. Because if you ask, you ask your typical reader of the Book of Mormon, typical member of the church, who is plainer, Nephi or Isaiah? And I'll, they'll go with Nephi every time. Um, but I think Nephi gives us some interesting clues. He says, I know concerning the regions roundabout. He gives two ways of understanding Isaiah. You can do the, the prophecy, or you can know about the, the culture. Um, and you know, from, from a scholar's point of view, this is, this is interesting, because the only avenue you have for the scholars is to talk about the regions roundabout and get to know that sort of thing. Because we don't have any authority to, to talk about, um, to, even if we get something revealed to us by revelation, we don't have any position where that revelation implies to anybody but ourselves. So uh, from the scholarly point of view, you're stuck with the other method which is inferior but the thing with the anything that's revealed to you is revealed to you and only affects the area of your stewardship and none of us are in the position uh, I don't think to uh, receive revelation for anything but ourselves and our families so you can't you can't put that forward when you're talking about Isaiah and expect it to have any validity, so you have the other route. Well, we're going to talk a little more about Isaiah in the next hour and you know some of the tools that we have, but um, I, I like the fact that we have this bridge right here that's very helpful, and I think people get here and they just breathe a sigh of relief, John, because as you were saying, uh, Isaiah is kind of like the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. In fact, I, I think Robert Alter might agree with you. He uh, was very complimentary about Isaiah, and I, I, I actually couldn't wait for his last for this last version of the Hebrew Bible translation he was doing because he had pretty much done everything except the prophets, 
leading off with Isaiah, and I was really excited to get that translation and be able to dive into it. And, you know, he does a marvelous job with that. But let's back up a minute then and uh, go back to the beginning of our section, which is in 2 Nephi chapter 20. And, um, and this, is, um, this is a little interesting break, because if you look at the Isaiah portion, so this would be like starting Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to go through 14, but it's right in the middle of a section in Isaiah that runs from chapter 7 to chapter 12. So 2 Nephi 17 through 22, and we've dropped right in the middle of it with half of it last week and, uh, and half of it this week. So we're almost starting, in, so we're starting in the middle. Uh-huh. So our, our forerunners from last week gave us, you know, a few chapters of this yeah. segment. But right here we're talking about the destruction of Assyria. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, 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 I like the way that he deals with Assyria and explains it and, and, and uses this portion in such a way that Assyria thinks they're doing well, but they also are evil, but they are being used by a tool of the Lord against the wickedness of Judah. Yeah. and uh, Or I should say Israel. Well, yes, against Israel, but also against Judah as well. Uh, I've been doing some readings in the end of the Assyrian Empire and because a, a new volume of inscriptions just got published that deals with that time period and it reads like the Gadiant and Robber section in the Book of Mormon. So you're getting these reports to the king that's saying well this group went in and wiped out this other group and they're also reporting, well, so-and-so, these people approached me and asked me to assassinate this official. And so we made a covenant, and I assassinated him. And, you know, which is sort of startling to read the Gadiat and Robbers version of history. But there it is at the end of the Assyrian Empire. And so... Um, but you look back on some of the Assyrian practices and they kind of deserved what they got. <laughs> but, and, and some of it has warnings for our day. For example, there was a study done on um, Neo-Assyrian census accounts. And until the reign of Esarhaddon, they, what you had is you had both the poor classes and the rich the elites multiplying. The but starting with the Utah reign of Esarhaddon, um, then the poor people stopped reproducing themselves. And so they were not having enough children to replenish their own population. And so, which is very similar to what we're seeing around us Oh, it's all over days. the West. Well, not only all over the West, all over the East, all over just about anywhere but Africa. Um, it's uh, 
in some ways a little disheartening, but uh, that's, that's something that they were facing as well. So when they didn't have the, when they got attacked, they couldn't conscript the lower classes because there weren't as enough of them to make a difference on the army. So there are all these things going on at the end of the Assyrian Empire. So it's, but a lot of it is their pride. Um, and you can see, if you read some of their rhetoric, uh, you can see some of that pride creeping out that we get here with the destruction of Assyria. Um, sorry, Kevin, I think I've taken a lot well, of Well, that's okay. Time. I was going to jump to Kevin for chapter 21. The stem of Jesse will judge in righteousness. Talk to us about the rod out of the stem of Jesse and the branch that grows out of the roots. Well, the thing that I remember most about this chapter that I <laughs> prepare for is this is one of the chapters that the angel quoted to Joseph Smith, uh, which is interesting. We shall <clears throat> come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity of the meek of the earth and shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and it just it goes on and like like this and after this it gets this millennial picture a little bit later and so there's <clears throat> there's a sense in which uh, you know it's, it's this prophecy is also applied to to, to Christ but uh, there are things that, that happened in his lifetime that when he had this, this wisdom and things, but which uh, certainly quite a bit of it did not happen as a result of his direct ministry, but I think will eventually happen later. Then there's the famous prophecy in, uh, about the, the root of Jesse, and it shall be in its stand for an assigned to the people, and shall be the, the Gentiles shall seek, and his dress shall be glorious, and it shall come to pass that the Lord shall set his hand think we lost you there, Kevin. Okay. So one of the things, and uh, we'll hope to get Kevin back pretty soon, um, is that um, the manual talks about how uh, the Savior is fulfilling prophecies of peace, particularly in these next two chapters. So, John, these last two chapters are at the end of this segment you were talking about that begins with, Verse, I think it's 17, chapter 17. Chapter and 17 goes to and, 22. And uh, it's all about the plot against Ahaz. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's interesting is we look at um, Jewish interpretations of 11. So I'm going to read you a Jewish translation of an ancient Targum on Isaiah. Okay. You need to tell people what a Targum is. A targum is, so this is a translation of the Bible into Aramaic. And so they would, when they would do the translation, they'd often do interpretations that they'd throw in, and sometimes lengthy ones. So it's kind of like a footnote or a yeah. commentary. Well, it's kind of like a commentary, except the commentary is woven into the text. Into the text, yeah. And so when they're translating it, they're often explaining the meaning of it rather than what we would think of as a literal translation. So this is 
So this is Isaiah uh, chapter 11, 1, or 2 Nephi 21, 1. This is what it reads in, in our version. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. So this is the Jewish translation of this ancient Targum on it. And a king shall come forth from the sons of Jesse, and from his children's children the Messiah shall be anointed. So they're seeing all of this as messianic. And this, it's hard to say how far back this interpretation goes, but it goes back before Christ. And this is the way they understand, um, this is the way they understand this passage in Isaiah. And so Nephi takes this as messianic. And so, which is an indication to us that this is this translation goes back into messianic times, and particularly this term that they talk about branch. Um, the Hebrew term there is netzer, and that's picked up in in Matthew because he says that uh, there's a prophecy that the Jew, that uh, the Savior will be called a Nazarene, and it's from the same root and doesn't and and so he's picking up that same interpretation that we see that this is referring to the messiah mm -hmm. and so part of the problem with understanding isaiah is that this is obvious to nephi not so obvious to us well once again we're what 2500 years yeah, 2800 years behind the times right but this is one of the reasons why it's useful to study some of the things roundabout and to try to understand what some of the uh, some of these manner of prophesying of the Jews is, because you can translate it and you can get all the words and completely miss the meaning. Okay, Kevin, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> we were we were just uh, talking, and I, I noticed that it was this. These things were also given to us as kind of as a key in uh, DNC 113. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I don't know how much you heard, but I did mention that this is this uh, when jo when uh, Moroni came to Joseph Smith. This is one of the passages quoted, and they yeah. talked about this being fulfilled in the near future. So, and that uh, the passages about the gathering, of course, you know, we we would see in. Read them, you know, to see what, like what we're watching in our lifetimes with the church, and uh, also in our lifetimes with watching, watch, you know, with uh, Israel becoming a state again. So these kind of things have a resonance to us. Where it's not just in the book, it's out there in, in what we're watching every day. It's amazing. And it's the messianic prophecy that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. You know, the manual uh, refers us to a talk given by Elder Renland in 2021 called The Peace of Christ Abolishes Enmity. And as I was thinking about that talk, I was thinking about President Benson's talk about pride because he described pride as enmity, enmity against God and enmity against our fellow man. And when we, when we think about the peace of Christ that's brought about as a result of the messianic uh, actions, that 
really is the sense that it abolishes enmity and therefore it abolishes pride. And, and that's really one of the, one of the roots that, that the Israelites in particular at that time were being, were being chastised for is be, because of the pride. And then we have the envy of Ephraim. He'll set up an ensign for the nations and assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy of Ephraim shall also, de- also shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philippines to- Philistines, not the Philippines, towards the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. So, the envy of Ephraim shall depart. What was that envy? I, I think, wasn't that the envy of Ephraim not having the temple because Jerusalem had the temple and that was in the land of Judah? Would that be possible? Uh, except there are temples up in Israel too. Um, well, they, they set up temples when they, they split They set off. up temples, right. But there are also these temples outside of Jerusalem in Judah. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when Lehi and his group and Le- Nephi comes out. Nephi doesn't have a problem building a temple outside of Jerusalem. No. So, um, so I'm going to leave that question up in the air, just to say there's uh, there's another way of looking at that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if that's the envy, but they certainly did envy each other, and that's actually what ki- the episode that kicked this off in chapter seven. You have Pekah in Israel. Um, getting a, a, forming an alliance with with Damascus to depose of the recently, uh, so Ahaz has just ascended to the throne and they've decided they want to um, take over Judah and put a puppet on the throne and have them pay tribute to Israel and, and and Syria, and so that seems to be a particular um, source of enmity behind that move. Okay, but there, there, there may be other reasons for enmity besides just not having the temple. So, Kevin, what else do we get out of this chapter as, as a result of of uh, this prophecy? Um, well, and then it closes out with there will be a highway for the remnant of the people which shall be left and from Assyria like it was to Israel in the day he came up out of Egypt. So, I mean, that looks to me like talking about there will be people on the move and people being gathered. And then going to chapter 22, In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song, he also has become my salvation. Um, you know, this last verse 6 of this chapter, they refer to him once again as the Holy One of Israel. Now, there's a few titles that Isaiah uses that I notice, and I've, I've read 
uh, Margaret Barker and others who've been very critical of the Deuteronomists uh, for removing those. I think another one is the Lord of Hosts. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that and and how they apply here in Isaiah, Kevin. Yeah, well, the one of the things with uh, Luther. Oh, <laughs> oh dear! We've been having a little technical trouble with our uh, with our Zoom. So, so okay. Well, um, I was looking forward to his comments. We'll we'll get him back. Yeah. So let's uh, let's put that one on hold. Yeah. The you've got the you've got a lot of titles in in Isaiah that you don't necessarily find other places and Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah is prophesying in Judah when Israel is taken captive. And so there's some concern about Israel that isn't necessarily reflected in later prophets. And, and there's still the sense in Isaiah that these two nations... Israel in the north and Judah in the south are really part of one nation and they're just temporarily estranged and that they come from the same stock. Uh, whereas uh, after Israel is gone, some of the later prophets, you know, they're only concerned with Judah because that's all that's left. And so we, we go on then to the destruction of Babylon and... Uh, lots of stuff here. Lots of stuff there. So um, Babylon. So in Isaiah's day, Babylon is a sometime major power because the Assyrians keep trying to take it over and it keeps rebelling. So... Some of the stuff that they say here, uh, if you start reading the documents from Babylon, uh, you find some interesting, uh, some interesting parallels here. So, uh, for instance, uh, 2310, the stars of heaven, the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth. The moon shall not cause light to shine well there's this whole series of texts of predictions of what happens if the sun goes is dark or the stars of heaven disappear or the moon disappears and uh, to give you an example in Easter Haddon's time there was a lunar eclipse and the reports that came in was yeah they we saw the lunar eclipse everywhere which uh, for those who know something about lunar eclipses, isn't surprising. But they, what's interesting is we have this letter to Easter Haddon that says, um, yeah, we wouldn't worry about this because the uh, prediction is that only the, the king of uh, the sort of northwest Syria is affected by that. But since you now control that, that's you. And so... What we want to do is we want to perform the ritual to um, alleviate the problem here. So what they do is they have the king go into hiding, put in a substitute king, and then kill him. 
and and then report back that he's yeah because this is this is bad news for the the king so or the king of that area and since he is now in charge of that area that means that they need to uh, sort of appoint somebody to be a king and have him suffer all the evil consequences uh, but usually an eclipse of this sort would promote an evil consequence be interpreted as a bad thing and was a bad sign and you read that all over the uh, the records the records that, that we have and so this is spot on and when Isaiah is prophesying this about Babylon uh, you know it's immediately followed with I will punish the world for evil and the wicked for the for their iniquity um, and and cause uh, all of these dire effects along with an eclipse that means something to the Babylonians of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, we look at it and think of this as somewhat quaint, or from particularly from a modern point of view, we think, well, yeah, there's there's nothing we should read into that. But if we want to understand it from their point of view, this is this is catastrophic. Okay, let me hold that. I want to follow up with a question on that, but we've been able yeah. to get Kevin back. So, Kevin, we put the question of titles on hold till we could get you back. So okay. uh, go go ahead. And both of us are we're anxious to hear what you had to say about that. Okay, well, yeah, that the, the Deuteronomist just wanted to have a strict monotheism, and they stopped using the title the Holy One of Israel, despite Isaiah's use of it, and the Lord of Hosts. And uh, I think it's, and Margaret makes you know, the case that these titles are very, very important. And you know, she goes through the Enoch literature and shows things associated. And uh, when I wrote Paradigms Regained, it was easy to show that the Book of Mormon uses those titles and uses them in exactly the context that they're supposed to use. But uh, theologically, later, the thing that gets really interesting is is that Nephi expressly associates. You know, he declares that uh, that Christ is the Lord of Hosts, that the Messiah will be the Lord of Hosts, and so it's. And uh, the Holy One of Israel, the Christ is the Holy One of Israel. So these things are said, you know, like verse 29 there, Christ is the Holy One of Israel. That's the anointed. That's the, the one who's going to be coming down and doing all of this stuff is the God of Israel. And it, it's very explicit and clear. And, of course, that's, too, that's one of the things that uh, impressed Margaret because she was, uh, she was going against, uh, you know, what was generally thought uh, the interpretation of the Bible was. And then and she... She, she looked at all this evidence that people were, had been generally ignoring, and that's exactly what led uh, LDS scholars to, to look at her work, was this, this recognition, this identity between Christ and the Holy One of Israel. That, that, and that was the declaration of the first Christians, that Christ was the Holy One of Israel. And that, theologically, that's, that's an important framing for us. So... Would that be considered anachronistic by some of those who, who want to argue that uh, there's too much of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon? I think it's a good argument that the Book of Mormon is right. You know, and that's, that's what she declared. She says that's what you should, should expect. You should expect to see Christ in the Old Testament because Christ himself saw himself in the Old Testament and said so, and that's what all of the early Christians said. So it's, it's a more consistent reading with, with what... Uh, you know the early the earliest declaration of the Christians declared you know, that you know there's several places in the New Testament where it's always said <clears throat> that uh, he was the son of 
most son of the most high god mm -hmm. but then all of the titles applied to yahweh to, are then being applied to jesus throughout the new testament and by the early christian writers so there's that that identity is there and it's explicit in in nephi and then it, there's several other places in the book of mormon where it's there you know when jesus comes in third nephi he says i am he who gave the law <laughs> it's it's very clear okay thank you so now we're going to go back to follow up with what Kevin was talking about with Babylon for a minute, because I, I, what was the status of Babylon here at the time of Isaiah? Because if we can set our, if we can review our Old Testament chronology from a couple of years ago, Isaiah's writing in about the 800s BC. Yeah, he's BC. writing. Eight, he's eighth century, so he's the 700s. 700s, BC, okay, and maybe into the 600s. Um, but still, that's before Babylon really took over Assyria. I mean, Assyria was was the king of the hill at the time Isaiah wrote, correct? Well, yes. But the thing, there's a couple of things that happen with um, Babylon is supposed to be an Assyrian province during Isaiah's day, but it's not always an Assyrian province in Isaiah's day. So one of the big people is Merodach Baladon, and he gets chased out of Babylon at least twice. And he goes, hides in the swamp, comes back, takes over Babylon. And so they had a real hard time with that. And then uh, under Sennacherib, uh, Sennacherib sent his son and heir to be in charge of Babylon and the locals. And he's the Assyrian king. He's the Assyrian king. Okay. And the locals kill him and revolt. And this is actually prophesied I had, here. I had not heard this story. This is actually prophesied here in Isaiah 23 and 24. Because they talk about the this will come and wipe out Babylon, and everybody says, "Well, yeah, that's the uh, that's the Persians." The Persians entered peacefully. They they marched in, took over, and no no problem. But Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, was furious, and so he besieged Babylon for two years, and they held out for two years, and then he conquered it, and. We've got ash layers in the archaeology. He burned it to the ground, said nobody is allowed to settle here. And there's a complete, even though all the towns around them, we have, uh, we have daily documents that date to the time period at the end of Sennacherib's reign, beginning of Esarhaddon's reign, nothing from Babylon. And Esarhaddon actually explicitly says that he reestablished Babylon. And so it was a complete destruction, and you, and you look here in, um, in 24. No, actually, it's Well, in, in 23, 23, verse it says he'll, he'll come in, and it shall never be inhabited, neither shall there dwell there from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, there the wild beasts of the desert shall be there, and Esar Haddon talks about how it had been a meadow. Well, and so, right here in verse 19, it says, the beauty of the Chaldee's excellency, the glory of the kingdom. So in other words, at that time, Babylon had a reputation as being a very beautiful city, right? Yeah, and, and it was ruled by Chaldeans. Okay, So the right. Chaldeans, so 
when when you get to the to Nebuchadnezzar and his the dynasty, they're not Chaldean. They're not Chaldean down in Babylon. In fact, a lot of the Chaldeans have been oh. wiped out at the end of the Assyrian rule. And so, um, so when it's talking about the Chaldeans in Babylon, that was in Isaiah's day. That is not in Lehi's day. Okay, they're two different. They're two. The Babylon was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt, and it was the rebuilt one that destroyed the temple, right at, at the time of Lehi. Yeah. Okay. And so this is one of the reasons I think that Isaiah was prized so much is he predicted this ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is what's going to happen, and it did. And either at the end of his life or, or towards the end of his life or right after he died. And so I think he's, he's got the, uh, that reputation of he predicted the destruction of Babylon. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why they want to keep him around is not only does he talk really well, but he was but right. he gets it right. And, and Nephi knows that because he's lived in a time where he said, yeah, we know that they got wiped out and that, you know, for a whole generation, nobody lived there. And so I've, okay. And, and so I, I think this is one of the, I, I love these passages in Isaiah because um, he does it, he, he predicts it right. And he does it in uh, a manner that you just have to be awed at his control of the language. So in verse 24, there's a note in our Book of Mormon, the, re- the real Book of Mormon, the one done yeah. by the church that the fallen king of Babylon in verse 12 is typified by the fallen son of the morning, which is Lucifer. Um, So how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Um, And he talks about, he talks about, you know, he's going to ascend into heaven. He'll exalt his throne above the stars of God. A a lot of the things that we get from our preexistent, narratives uh from other restored scripture um is it pops up right here in in isaiah and and this is taking uh takes a a babylonian story we've got Mm -hmm. two versions of this but probably the best one would be the exaltation of inanna and so you have the morning star goes down into the netherworld and then later comes back up and Isaiah is using this motif and saying, yeah, you'll have the morning star go down and it will stay down there. Yeah, it doesn't come back up. It doesn't come back up, which, is, uh, which plays off of this Babylonian story in so many different play- ways and places. My, my introduction to this story, and Kevin, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this, but was from Hugh Nibley. He talked mm-hmm. about this in our class on the Pearl of Great Price, where he started our class with Matthew chapter 25, the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew. Yeah. And he talked about this pre-existence story of Babylon and how there the was the, the son that went down to the netherworld and came up but was backed by the heavenly mother of that. Yeah, yeah that, that's... 
pantheon, I guess you'd that call it. That sounds like the the other version, which is the Nergal and okay. Irish Kegel But anyway, uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard of anything like that. It was eye-opening for me to to be able to, to see that. So that kind of helps me get a little bit more context here uh, of what, what Brother Nibley was talking about. But... Kevin, are there other places in Isaiah and the Book of Mormon where we get this story uh, about the preexistence in this way and, and about Satan? Or Lucifer, I should uh, say. Yes, there are. There's actually a, uh, Isaiah 1 has it. But Isaiah, Isaiah 1 isn't in the, isn't isn't in the, in the Book of Mormon. Mormon. It's not in the Book of Mormon, but it, it's in Isaiah. Yeah, so that's it, true. Yeah, the, the point is, is, it's not in the Book of Mormon, but this is something that was, that's going around. Let's see if I can... Oh, well, it's, it's one of those things where you... If you, th- you think, well, why didn't they quote Isaiah 1 in the Book of Mormon? Because <coughs> it's such a great chapter. And then you have to realize that they keep saying, well, we need to quote more of this, but we don't have room, or I'm out of ore, or... Um, you know, you have this, just go search it. Yeah, because so, it was yeah. already in the brass plates com- more completely. Yeah, and, and yeah. so, yeah, Isaiah 1 is great, even if it doesn't actually end up in the text of the Book of Mormon. Yep. Okay, I'm looking for the lines where he says, oh, yeah, he says uh, in, in verse 2, uh, for the Lord hath spoken, I have nursed and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. You know, that's, you know part of talks thoughts about that is that's, Which chapter is that, Kevin? That's Isaiah 1, verse 2. Oh, Isaiah 1. You know, and she she talks about, uh, oh, where's the other thing? Um, Let's see. uh, uh, Princes are rebellious companions of these. Where is it? Um, I'm looking for... uh, Yeah, she does talk about this. Oh, yeah, verse 31, the strong one shall be his toes. She points out that... uh, that, uh, the strong one is associated with Azazel and the Enoch stories, so that's she sees the connection between you know the fallen angels right there and you know the the children who have rebelled. She sees that as as pointing back to that uh, the war in heaven, which is you know the whole fallen angel thing is all all about the war in heaven. So it's there in Isaiah, yeah, and it's it's the cultural background. So. Let's move on then. Uh, let's kind of wrap this up. So um, at the tail end of chapter 24, before we jump to Nephi's interpretation, okay? Um, Actually, I think, why don't we just move to 25 because we've only got, that's we've got less probably than 10 a minutes good left idea. and there's yes. so much in 25. <laughs> okay, let's go. Uh, John, what stands out to you most from chapter 25? And then we'll go to Kevin and myself. Um, well, one of the things that, that Nephi emphasizes a lot in 25 is the Messiah. And that's one of the things that he expects you to get out of Isaiah. And, you know, ending, well... Uh, the Messiah commenced in 600 years from the time my father left Jerusalem, and according to the words of the prophets and also the word of the angel of God, his name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, you know, there's one Messiah spoken of by the prophet, 
and that Messiah should be rejected by the Jews. Um, and then he switches, once he says his name will be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he just switches to Christ. As, and I think that's trying to be plain by introducing it and then say, I'm not going to mess with uh, these different views of the Messiah. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ. And so we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ. We write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Um, and so he, that's going to be the focus, and that's what he wants us to see out of Isaiah. And some of it is because uh, that's the Holy One of Israel, and uh, he, he wants to draw those connections. And he also will slide in these praises from Isaiah from time to time to remind us that what that that's what he's talking about Christ is the holy one of Israel you wherefore you must bow down before him and worship him with all your might mind and strength and your whole soul and if you do this you shall in no wise be cast out so these are all uh, this is the emphasis and this is what he wants to, us to get out of this long discussion uh, long quotations of Isaiah um, I think we may sometimes be hampered by the translation. Um, you know, just like Shakespeare is usually not considered quite as good in translation as he is in the original. Um, Kevin, your thoughts? Actually, we lost Kevin again, so oh. I'll go, and then <laughs> we'll bring Kevin back here in a second. But uh, I, I was, I've always been struck by uh, the verses right after that about um, well actually right before that we talk of Christ we rejoice of Christ we preach of Christ because I like verse 24 okay um, actually verse 23 we write labor diligently to persuade our children and our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God for we know it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do and notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith, yet we keep the law because of the commandments. So in other words, it's, it's really a an explanation of what the law of Moses was all about. And it jumps to Jacob chapter 4, verse 5. For this intent we keep the law of Moses at pointing our souls to him, and for this cause it is sanctified unto us for righteousness. Um, so I, I, for me, it's just another element to add uh, that, that unifies that. And really, for me, it means the Book of Mormon is more the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It fills the gap in a way that is so effective in identifying Jesus as the Christ. And, and it picks up some interesting things because the Law of Moses is one of the few places where they are explicit about the Messiah and Christ's role, particularly in the sacrifices. So what, when he says we keep the Law of Moses and look forward steadfast unto Christ, um, 
there are references to the Messiah in the sacrifices in the Law of Moses. And if you know how to, if you know what you're looking for, you can still find them. And he certainly did. And that's why he says that they can point their souls to him. Because if you read the Law of Moses, that's what it, there's a role for Christ in the sacrifices. Yes. And uh, if you're just doing the sacrifices, you might miss that. Okay. Let me see if we've got Kevin back really quick. Can you hear me, Kevin? Okay. We're still having a little trouble with that. Technical difficulties. Yes, definitely. Well, I I think that I'm glad you brought those verses up. I think that this, I think this is one of the key places where Nephi is saying, I'm not going to, um, you know, he's just quoted this masterful Hebrew prophet who is a, also a poet and then says, well, I'm going to do this plainly, so we're going to talk about Christ and not talk about him obliquely, but talk about him directly. And I think that's one of the things that Nephi had learned from being transported into different cultures is he knew that it, it wasn't going to work and if he wanted this to have any longevity in this new culture, he was going to have to be a little more plain about it. Well, and I, I think also, if, you, if we look at the Book of Mormon history as well as the Old Testament history, those that became, especially at the time of Jesus, those that were so wrapped up in the law of Moses failed to recognize Jesus in the right way. So there we go. Kevin, you're back with us. Um, we are out of time for our Come Follow Me segment, but we do want to hear Kevin's comments about this, so we will bring him right back after the news break to talk about that, and then we'll go into our second hour. Technology so, permitting. Yes, technology permitted. So thank you for being with us. Uh, this is uh, Terry Hutchinson as well as John Gee and Kevin Christensen, and we will be right back after this news break for the second hour of Interpreter Foundation Radio. Please stay tuned. You know, right before the break, we were having some technical issues, and uh, we had been talking about the last uh, chapter of our segment for Come Follow Me, which was Second Nephi chapter 25. John got to give his take on it. I got to give mine, but we didn't get Kevin's. So we'd like to invite Kevin to just take a couple of minutes and lead into that before we go into the next segment of our broadcast. Well, this is, again, this is where you get this uh, explicit interpretation that that uh, it's going to be God himself who's, who's going to be the Messiah. You know, the, the, there's still going to be the, the Father, and that there was the concept of the Most High, El Elyon, but it was recognized that it would be the God of Israel who would be the Messiah, who would be uh, the Son of God, who would perform the Atonement. That's, that's all beautifully explicit here. And uh, the, the Nephi is spelling it all out. I think it's... it's um, there's, I've read a couple of different writers that talk about how that uh, Isaiah uh, could have been temple liturgy at one time, which means it wouldn't be just read; it would be performed. And I, and it's, it just occurred to me now. I was thinking that it's possible that some of the clarity that Nephi has in interpreting Isaiah could be not just from his reading it, but maybe he's, he's seen it. So he's seen actions performed with some of these words, 
and uh, that would help people know what's going on better. But but putting this all in in plain language as he does and stating it very clearly is is something that uh, I think is is excellent. And and when Margaret Barker spoke on the Book of Mormon, you know, she said we should expect to see you know seeing Christ in the Old Testament is, is exactly what we should expect. And the loss of that is one of the you know <clears throat> is uh, one of the plain and precious things that she felt like that she was recovering and was surprised to find already in the Book of Mormon. All right, that wraps up our "Come Follow Me" segment. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> 